This is Stage Right, and I am your host, John Thorne. They say if you die with a handful of friends, you die a rich man. Well, I have several buses full, and I'm very excited to share them all with you. This is Stage Right. I am your host, John Thorne. Thanks for joining me today for episode 38, which features another longtime friend of mine. Today I'll be joined by Greg Golden, who is a great human being who has spent his entire life serving others, doing what he can do to have impact on other people. So really excited. First, though, I promised last week that I would read the best three answers to the question, if you could spend one full day with anyone in the world, who would it be with and what would you want to do for that entire day? So here are the top three responses in no particular order. Paul Drake messaged me and said, if I could spend one day with anyone, I would pick Aaron Sorkin. He is my favorite screenwriter. I would love to spend the day workshopping scripts and brainstorming with him. The best way to make a story come to life on screen. Uh, Paul has a degree in film and wants to be a filmmaker someday. So another response came from Rick Pepper, who has actually gotten a shout out a time or two on the show. He listens in Mankato, Minnesota. This is Rick's response. I'm sure everybody says this, but that's a really tough question. So Rick's answer is Bill Schnee, Grammy Award winning audio engineer and producer. I would spend the day with him. Ideally, in, in an analog multi-track studio, playing back tracks from some of the classic albums that he worked on and that I grew up listening to. Or I would do the same scenario with Rob Colby, who was also a Grammy Award-winning engineer, kicking it with Paisley Park. He grew up a couple blocks from where I live now. And thirdly, Ron Rockstar. <laughs> I had to read this one because... This is one of the most uh, unexpected answers to that question. Ron said, uh, as much as I would like to spend the day with Bruce Springsteen walking around the Jersey Shore, there was someone I would like to spend the day with more than that. I won't even say their name, but I'd like to spend the day with them, asking them to forgive me for some mistakes I made. I'd like to spend the day hanging out, laughing, sharing stories, and just enjoying hanging out like we used to do. And I chose that as uh, the third response because I really thought it was selfless of Ron to actually want to make up for something that he had done to someone, uh, lost touch with him, uh, friendship kind of gone awry, and uh, he would want to spend the day making up for that. I think that's pretty cool. Meeting celebrities is great, Ron said, but spending a full day with someone to correct a wrong is worth more than anything. And I wholeheartedly agree, my friend. Ron Rockstar, that's what makes you such a good dude. Hey Rockstar provides digital marketing software and services to generate more leads, more exposure, and more revenue for your business or organization. Let Hey Rockstar amplify your awesomeness. My guest today is truly one of the unsung heroes in the American church and in Christian music altogether. He has spent his lifetime serving in church, serving the ministry of Roger Breland in Truth, my good friend, Mr. Greg Golden. How you doing today, Greg? Welcome to the show. John, thank you. It's just been a delight to be in touch and uh, for the opportunity to do this. It's just a real joy for me. That's awesome. We've known each other now almost 35 years. <laughs> uh, it's hard to even put my mind around that, you know, when you realize that so much mileage has gone on and so many things have taken place, but, you know, God's been faithful to keep our friendship intact in a great way. Right. Well, listen, I um, not to make 35 years sound worse than it was, but I want to go back to the very beginning with you because I want to set the foundation of how you ended up where you're at. You started out in the very first group Roger Breland ever put together with Truth. You know, um, it, was, it was a crazy Sunday afternoon. Uh, I had just... Well, backing up a little bit before then, I was a part of, a, um, a, as a volunteer with a large church in Louisville, Kentucky, you know, on, on a tech team. And it was something that I had just kind of came naturally for me. And so 
at some point, uh, Roger Breland and his uh, amazing networking around the country began putting out feeders to say, do you know anybody that knows how to run sound? And uh, somehow that word got from Mobile, Alabama, 600 miles north to the seminary, Baptist Seminary in Kentucky and Louisville. And uh, someone that I can't even name today uh, knew I was a volunteer in a large church and helping out with their media, their tech. And somehow I gave my name. And, of course, this predates cell phones by, like, decades. <laughs> sure. And I was uh, happened to be in the church office around 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon preparing for an evening uh, youth concert. And I got a holler from someone down the hall saying, Greg Golden, you have a phone call. And that that was startling in its own right. But then I get to the phone and it's, uh, hi, I'm Roger Breland. And I, I don't know Roger Breland, but he said, I got your name and et cetera. And in that conversation, he let me know what his need was. As it turns out, his sound man was also their bus driver and he had just gotten drafted into the military. So he was leaving and he, Roger was doing sound uh, kind of from the side of the stage and he had, he needed somebody. So the tour was going to be uh, forming shortly, and he uh, asked if I would consider coming. And, you know, I was following the Lord enough to know at that point, you don't just blow that off. You, you just, if that comes into your uh, scope, you say, sure. If he says, would you pray? I say, sure, I'll, I'll pray. And I didn't know what would come out of that. Right. But I was in my chosen career, John. I had always wanted to be a part of, uh, in, in a video environment, I was one year into my what I thought would be my life's work. And uh, I was having a great time uh, learning a lot. And really one of those things where you, you know, it's one of the careers where you have to have experience to get a job, but you have to have a job in advance to get the experience. And <laughs> right. so one of those, you know, terrible loops. And I had broken through that loop and I was a year into it. So I wasn't thinking of going anywhere, but as it turned out, I had gotten, uh, I, I got sick the next day. I didn't go to work for three days. He had left the uh, timetable with me. Would you let me know in three days? I have to know. So literally, I spent three days reading my Bible and praying and sleeping and trying to discern God's will. And at the end of the three days, I had the answer. And it didn't make any sense in my overall picture of my career. But I told him, yes, I would come. That is remarkable, because usually 2 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, the church is cleaned out by then. Everybody's out to dinner. Exactly. You know, preparing for a, uh, an evening concert, we just had gotten there early to do some, you know, set up for some likes and so forth. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you look back at the randomness of how all that took place, and me so far away and all that, it, it just is, the, the odds are so infinitesimally small that I would have ever been found. And uh, he, he found me. Wow. Okay, so we're talking 1971. Quartet music is basically contemporary music in the church. Uh, everyone still uses hymnals and stuff. What was it like to be part of a group that had horns and drums and guitars, taking them into churches, especially in the South back then? What were some of the obstacles you guys faced? I mean, especially you being the sound man. There was a lot of skepticism, I can tell you that. <laughs> and uh, I, I can tell you that when we... Uh, the, I mean, there were some some churches that one staff member was all gung ho, yes, bring him in, and somebody else, a little higher up the food chain, said, you know what, their hair is too long, wow. and so uh, they literally uh, had to do, uh, you know, there, there were some moments. I can tell you about times where we had to put our horns in a different room right. because they the the church was so small, we would have overpowered them with no microphones. Right. And so we, we had a lot of invitations to smaller venues, but along the way, and even while we, you know, from month to month, we saw a bigger um, acceptance of it. We found some pockets that were absolutely uh, just perfect. Mississippi, I'd never spent any time in Mississippi in my life and became, uh, we love Mississippi because they took truth in. Hmm. And all corners and all small and large parts of it and just loved on the group. Uh, it was kind of phenomenal and uh, became – we found people that would show up after, you know, we'd go through a concert one night. Then we'd drive 60 miles, and the same people would come from that town and watch us again, and we'd go 60 miles away, and they'd come again. So uh, oh. <laughs> it was just the acceptance and the affirmation of what we did 
was really pretty overwhelming. Uh, and Texas was almost like that too. Florida was like that. Uh, just quite, uh, it was encouraging enough that you just didn't say, well, you know, we're going to just quit. Hmm. We just kept going. Wow. So you basically just persevered through it. Very much. Okay. So then how long were you actually on the road with Truth before you went to the front office? My tour went from, uh, I joined the group July 26, and we ended the tour June, I want to say 20. Okay. Uh, and then that was the regroup uh, period, and then a new rehearsal camp began began uh, essentially in the same part of July that following year. So I was on, on the road t- fully 11 months and, and, and then some. Wow. Well, knowing what truth became over the years and stuff, it's so wild to me to think that you were there at the very, very beginning of truth. What 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 happened, John, is, you know, looking back the first year and I, we actually I counted these. So I, I know I'm right. In 300 days, we did 400 concerts. <laughs> and that's no exaggeration. That that's a very real thing. Truly, it's, that's not like, you know, slamming the numbers around. We really did. And that's and to do that, you ended up doing always two on Sunday. And they were two different locations. Yep. And you frequently did a high school assembly on a on a, sun, on a on a Tuesday afternoon. And then you would invite the crowd to come that night to the local church, you know, uh, down the street. Yep. But it was a separate setup, separate concert. And uh, so, yeah, it, it was just... And the first real, and we started our tour in uh, essentially after recording at the Gaither Studios when we took off from Mobile. We did a couple concerts on the way north to Indiana. Uh, spent a week at Gaither, recorded two complete albums in one week. Wow. Went back on the road, and uh, and you know, this was with Truth Horns, Truth Truth Rhythm, Truth Singers, uh, and we needed an album. We needed actually two to get really started because. They um, people requested our songs. We wanted to have something for them to have. Sure. So we ended up um, beginning that whole stretch through the Midwest, and you know we turned back south. But uh, it it didn't let up any until I mean literally we had Thanksgiving Day off in Dallas that year, and uh, we broke for Christmas, and the first real time off that was I can remember was in uh, Orlando at Disney World. And we had one night off. So, I mean, it was just constant. Yeah, the schedule of truth was definitely relentless. It was just one full day after another, just bam, bam, bam. Okay, so get me from the bus to the office. What was that transition like? How did you end up in the office? It was kind of odd. You know, all along, I intended to stay one year, and that was it. In fact, my boss at the television facility in Kentucky where I was working, he was a believer. He understood what the call of God meant. And so, you know... In the course of telling him what I was praying about, he said, uh, you have my blessing. I'll hold your job for you. You can come back in a year and pick right back up. So wow. with that, that, that was remarkable. And with that as the uh, the future for me, I each as we went through our uh, entire tour, I was loving it more and more. I was seeing God's hand on the ministry more and more with salvation decisions, with excited people, with recommitments to Christ. And I didn't want to leave. Uh, and I knew that Roger had a system whereby if he really felt you were doing what he wanted you to do, mm-hmm. there was a point in the spring where he would call you into his office on the bus, little tiny cubicle, and uh, he would uh, have a conversation, you know, and, and that would be kind of his nod to say, if you want to come back, I'd like to have you back. Well, uh, he, we had that conversation. I remember we were en route to Knoxville on a Saturday night about to do a Church of God uh youth convention that next morning and he, I got the call we were sleeping on the bus I mean John you know you you've been on nice buses you've been on all kinds of buses we had no sleep facilities whatsoever right so you slept under seats you slept there was no luggage rack even there's no place to you know I've seen people get in the luggage rack and sleep we had a closet about eight feet long in the back that had multiple doors that opened into the same essential common space and those where your hang-up bag was in the closet. Well, that was a prime spot because you could get in that closet. If you were, <laughs> if you were sort of, you know, lean enough, you could slither into a spot. You could get under the sleeping bag or the hanging bags, and then you wouldn't get stepped on right. in the in the middle of the night when people were headed to the restroom. Right. So you, you were safe. But the the peril with that spot is that you could get left on the bus when it was time to get off and eat, or you get a restroom stop or whatever. You, and if you were sleeping. 
and you didn't know as things that you know people didn't see you they forgot you were there we've had people you know i remember we're left and you you know you say where is he well he's probably in the closet you know so <laughs> <laughs> uh and you know that was a great place to go but but um anyway he called me uh had that conversation then literally 16 hours later he called me back in his office and said i want you to come back to to uh you know be with me but i don't want you to do sound again i want you to move to mobile and start doing the sound for i'd be doing the booking for the group and i said well i'd prayed about the return to do the sound i already got that settled in my heart about that but i did not pray about coming and moving to mobile because that's not what i was thinking <laughs> right out there as an offer can i pray about that for a while he said absolutely uh, we'll talk in a week so literally a week later we're we were in Long Beach, California by that time. We took a stroll down the sidewalk outside the church. He said, what are you thinking? And I said, I've, I've had a chance to get peace about this, talk to my family, talk to, you know, I, and I, I didn't talk to my former boss because it wasn't a factor any longer. I just said, you know, God wants to be here. So I said, yes. So I moved to Mobile. I, I had sold my car uh, in the, uh, you know, when I first left uh, to come as uh, that, for that one year stand, I had to go buy a car had to rent an apartment and I did all those things in about three or four days hmm. and uh, drove back to Mobile and moved into a, an office that, you know, I didn't ever expect to see. Right. Okay. So then there was probably no procedure in place. Tell everyone how you developed a system to try to book all those concerts. You said 400 earlier for the first year, but Truth never did less than 325 concerts in a year. Oh, yeah. We easily did that many uh, every year. In fact, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but in the course of my time scheduling Truth, I booked 7,000 concerts, and uh, I, I counted every one out of those uh, calendar books. We used a book called The Executive Planner. Uh, that was what Roger used, and so he ordered ones for everybody in the office and the road manager. And... and um, the first, my first time coming into the office as a, as the booking agent, uh, green as I could be, never having done that. And I don't know where Roger got the idea. I could do that uh, <laughs> because he had no, uh, I had no previous experience in any form. But my, my role was director of promotions and public relations. And uh, that included, obviously, uh, the main part was booking. But I sat down at, at a desk and I had a... Uh, a nice ballpoint pen I had uh, had bought, real nice, easy writing ballpoint pen, and I started writing, you know, booking concerts in in pen, and learned really, really early on that pen was not the plan. You needed a nice pencil and a very good eraser, because things tended to change. It was always fluid. You know, you 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 hope someone wouldn't change their mind, but when they did, you needed to be able to erase that and move forward. So. Oh my goodness! So you booked seven thousand. How many canceled? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I let myself remember that number. <laughs> I think I blocked that. I'm sure. Uh, you know that I looked at. Uh, I, you know, Roger would tell you to this day that he found the truth personnel on his knees. Right. That would be. I've heard him say that. You've heard him say that. Yeah. But. Uh, I found truth concerts on my knees too. And mm. it was the sort of thing where you just had no idea what a day would, would, would yield, but you started trying to accrue information that might one. And I did a lot of, well, if you can't host us, do you know anyone that can questions, right. uh, in the course of being rejected, but, uh, more and more it was yes. And then when the phone calls came in, more than the calls that were made that was a turning point and 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 that would be where you actually kind of take a breath and say this is going to be okay right well i can say this when i was in truth i would take a sneaky peek at the big picture a lot of times and i would think to myself it is remarkable that every day we have a place to be and greg that was all because of you you know um it, the group was its best selling feature and it caused folks who came to want to see that happen in their church because, or in their high school or in their college. And, uh, every night was a matter of the, the excellence that Roger demanded and the excellence that musicians provided was the factor that made, 
the scheduling easier and easier as the years went on because it was word of mouth. It was uh, just known the caliber of music, the the, the ministry side uh, that was going to be you know, where a church could know that there'd be the gospel clearly presented and there would be no compromising on it whatsoever. That 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 was how the group was able to continue. It, it was way more of that than anything I had to do with it. I just kind of tried to manage the details on my side of it, but uh, it was clearly because you guys did such a great job out there on the road. Well, I think it's the egg and the chicken theory. It's like one <laughs> without the other isn't going to work. <laughs> Both absolutely necessary, but um, you know, it, and. It, we had you and I know of great groups who toured and presented uh, great music, but there was no gospel right. um, extension that, that came on the end. It was like you know, good night, have you know, good to see you. Yep. And well, you know, you know the number of uh, well, every night it was uh, whenever they allowed us to. There, there were times when they'd say, now, you know, when you get finished, just give it over to the pastor. He'll take the offering and <laughs> dismiss. And that was hard because you know you you wanted to be compliant. But you also knew what you why you were there and why you traveled so far. Right. And in JRB's case, that's why he left his family was to do ministry. He didn't do it just to moderate a concert. Absolutely. Okay, so you were part of Truth for what? Over twenty five years? I was there twenty eight years plus. Mm -hmm. 28 years. Wow. That's remarkable, Greg. Okay. So truth is winding down. Tell me the story of how you transitioned out of the truth office into the next phase of your life. In May of 2001, Roger called me and said, meet me in Nashville uh, on so-and-so a couple days later. And uh, it didn't really explain it. My assumption was because we were near the end of a, of a, a, a tour year that we're going to talk about strategy, what he wanted to see happen in the following tour. And we, we sat down at a little sidewalk cafe in Franklin, Tennessee, hmm. and uh, he just kind of said – and he – it was odd because he kind of got tearful on me, and I, I was, didn't know what was coming. I thought he was going to talk about his health or something. He's, he's, and what he said to me was, we're going to bring it to a close. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I knew what he was – you know, I didn't have to say what because <laughs> it was pretty clear – and he, he said, just like God told Linda and me to start truth, he's telling us to stop. And, you know, there were all sorts of, uh, well, and he, he, he really was emotional about it. And I just said, you know, he was telling me because we were best of friends. You know, Roger was my best man at my wedding. Hmm. I, I want to say I raised his, some of his sons, but there, there were times. In fact, let me take a little sidebar on this. We were. I was bringing Linda and the boys, who at that point were probably like twelve, uh, maybe eight and and five, hmm. to uh, to to India to I guess Nashville to do from they were going to do some recording, and I was driving them in in his car, and uh, Jeremy, the youngest, mm -hmm. was coloring in the back seat, and just out of the blue at one point, he said. Greg, are you our daddy? Oh, wow. And Linda turned crimson. And I said, no, no, I'm your daddy's good friend. I, I, I was able to help bridge some things with their boys. I put together toys before Christmas because mm. Roger was still on the road. Right. And, you know, he would say, can you go, please? I can't get home in time for this. Can you go over there? And when the boys go to sleep, can you put together this, you know, bicycle or whatever? Right. So. Uh, anyway, being with him in that moment in Franklin, it was uh, it was emotional for both of us. But he he was concerned about me. What would I do next? Mm. And I didn't know. I hadn't I didn't have a, another plan. I thought we were going to continue this just forward. And so I just said, "Don't worry about me. I'll be fine." Uh, you know. And I thought the same about him. What would you do? Because this is what you've done for the last 30 years. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, after that conversation, I drove back to Mobile and I went into the office of the pastor of the church that Debbie and I and my sons attended. And I just told him, I said, I want you to know what's on my horizon, what's coming in my life and ask you to just pray with me about it. And, uh, he said, when can you start? What? And I said, what? He said, Oh my gosh. When can you begin? I said, well, uh, he wanted. To, he offered me a position in media at my church, a nice, large 
influential church that had a lot of equipment and a lot of great prospects in the future. And I just said, well, I, we have, I have a seven month window to end the truth office and shut it down and sell things and, you know, close it. He said, well, then start then. That's crazy. That, that was, you know, there was no, no gap. I think the lesson for me, John, spiritually was that, you know, God, his picture includes all aspects of our needs and what is unknown to us is clearly known to him. And so he shows us, uh, as he can trust us with the future. And, uh, that's what happened with me that, that day, I didn't have a gap in unemployment. I moved literally from day one to day two from truth to a, a lovely church position that I maintained until last year. At the church you were already attending. Yeah, I was a volunteer there. Uh, absolutely. And that that kind of timing is almost unheard of. I can't believe it. that's the that's the ultimate. God knows what you have need of before you ask. Exactly. Oh yeah. That may be the most seamless transition of reinventing yourself I've ever heard in my life. All right. So then let's get to the last 20 years when you decided you wanted to be an author or you thought you might have a story in you. Uh, let's start with this. Were you a big reader when you were a kid? Did you love books? Yeah, I did. I, in the fourth grade uh, in my elementary school, there was uh, at Christmas time, we exchanged gifts uh, and you were allowed to spend a dollar. That was your, your, your limit. Well, a Hardy Boys book cost $1. And so a boy bought a boy's gift, a girl bought a girl's gift, and then you would exchange them uh, wow. kind of a randomly. So someone bought me a, a Hardy Boys book. It was my first one to read. And I fell in love with just the adventure of and the camaraderie of the boys. And then I began in the next two years, I read every one there was, which was at that point over 40. And when I finished those, I, I borrowed my neighbor's Nancy Drew books and read her books. And when I finished those, I sat down at my dad's big old heavy manual royal is a black cast metal typewriter and typed out a 30 page book that I made up my own story with the Hardy Boys characters. So writing to me was always fun and it really did come out of reading for sure. And uh, even in you know, high school and college writing was to me, no, it wasn't an issue. I just, I enjoyed writing. I was a journalism I had a journalism class in high school. Uh, I pursued that in college. So um, what I found was that I didn't plan to write. I was actually afraid to write for people at this at this point. Hmm. Uh, and I was doing so much mentoring and discipleship in my church position. I was ordained, and uh, I was I saw so many young men and older men, literally in their 60s and 70s, who in the course of their the discussion with me in my office, I would learn that they had big holes in their childhood where they did not have active or caring fathers or mm. present fathers. And I saw just that sadness of the dysfunction because they did not learn things that dads are supposed to teach their children. And right. they didn't have that mentoring uh, that went up through their early years. And so it began to really ache in my heart, and I, I saw you know, that even understanding what a functional family was supposed to look like, so many didn't have that. Uh, so along the way and kind of under the surface, I began to see that there was a, a gap and a need, and I began planning a book that was going to be uh, 50 Things My Dad Taught Me, and it mm. was just essentials like how to change a flat tire how to check your oil, you know, just functional things that should be transferred by, from a dad to a son, Right. Uh, how to clean a fish, how to tie a necktie, uh, how to date a girl, how to apply for a job, how, how to handle credit. Anyway, all those things were in my heart to just put into a book. And then uh, I still may do that. But anyway, I think there probably are books just as good already in on somewhere to be found like that. But, but the idea of taking and, and conveying an adventure story when I see so many uh, boys and girls who stay indoors and keep their eyes glued to, you know, video games and YouTube and texting and they don't go outside, they don't have, you know, the idea of a, of a deep conversation is frightening to them. I just right. wanted to put something 
in words that I thought might just, even if it's for a small number of people, I wanted to let folks know there is an alternate way to do childhood. Right. You you can go outdoors. You can climb trees. You can still you you can have fun. You can ride your bicycle. You you can look for ways to help people anonymously and you know just surprise them. I mean, find the widow on your street who whose yard is needing attention, and you you know you and your buddies go. Uh, after she's gone to bed, go clean her flower bed. And just, you know, we did that. Right. And I wanted to put that forward again in some form. So drawing from my childhood, I had a, um, my neighborhood was called Bon Air Village, B-O-N-A-I-R Village. And, uh, <laughs> and so I just made up, uh, I took about six of my friends and combined the personalities and me into three boys. Who are best friends? They're the Bon Air boys, and they. Uh, I took the my hometown and made it into a smaller hometown, in kind of a generic Midwest location. And that's my. I started writing a book, and I. And backing up even a tiny bit from there, I didn't want to write the book, but someone gave me a book that uh, by a wonderful pastor, mega church in Washington, Mark Batterson. His book, uh, the outcome of that, his book, which was left an open-ended, you know, how does this apply to you? Mm -hmm. To me, it applied to say something that God has told me to do that I've avoided doing, and, you know, you, you know what it is, and so I knew what it was. I was writing, and I always said I was afraid to write, and I didn't want to embarrass myself with somebody else reading my words hmm. and saying, oh, you know – you might want to try that again, you know, or, or they would wink and say, yeah, that was good. And turn away and go, Whoa, that was weird. <laughs> and uh, afraid of that rejection, right. I finally uh, came to the understanding. It wasn't a matter of, I was afraid to write. I was being disobedient and not writing. So when I, once I became obedient in writing and realized it didn't matter who else saw it, right. if anybody saw it, I had to write it. And also a big a motivating factor was we had at that point, a five-year-old grandson, and I wanted him to one day know what I, what he calls me pops, hmm. what his pops uh, did in his childhood. So now Grant is almost eight, and uh, he's where he can just about start reading my books. That's about the age range I have targeted, eight to about 13. So anyway, that was how. Uh, it was just a matter of deciding I needed to help some boys who may not have my experiences behind them realize that there is a functional family that can be had. If yours wasn't that way, you can break that yourself. Right. You can break. So that's what I did. Okay. So the characters are somewhat autobiographical. What about the stories? How did you come up with the storylines for the six books? Each case, I really did pull one or two things that I literally, uh, that came out of my actual experience. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> The, the, the first book opens up with the boys uh, kind of stomping through an underground uh, storm drain that was uh, empty and dry on a summer early summer morning. And uh, I did that many times with my friends. We would transverse under our neighborhood through four-foot-in-diameter concrete buried storm drains, mm -hmm. and we'd, we'd go down. And I'm not, I'm not really recommending that necessarily <laughs> I'm not, as a disclaimer. I'm not promoting that idea, but we did that. And uh, so – that's the beginning of that book, and and we talked in our rooms at night with walkie-talkies between uh, houses in the neighborhood, and and that's exactly what these boys in these books do. Uh, and so they they all contain um, elements of my childhood on purpose. I guess when I run out of them, I have to stop writing. I guess. <laughs> okay, so the names of the three main characters are Chase, Griffin, Frank. Were they friends of yours? How did you come up with the names? You know, I. I honestly can't answer that. In fact, John, I have to tell you that as I write and I sit down uh, in a, the same place every time, and it's kind of a little nook in one of our guest bedrooms, and I sit down to write and I st stand up when I'm finished, and I just kind of wonder how that got there hmm. because I, I, it's not like I'm being real intentional, but things lead to you know this this little moment in storyline leads to this moment in storyline, and I didn't plan any of them. No way. I look back and I say, wow, this is like, this is a surprise. I, I usually know a beginning and an ending, but I have to nego negotiate the middle and make it 
makes sense and keep intrigue and keep some cliffhangers going and, uh, you know, try to be creative in that regard. Uh, so yeah, I, this is a little, uh, side note from that, but last week I, I got an, e I got a letter in the mail from John Grisham. And those of you that know John Grisham, <laughs> oh uh, famed, uh, writer of millions and millions, hundreds of millions of books. Well, I had sent him a book and a letter last, uh, fall and, uh, out of the blue, I just said, you know, I want you to know I'm a fan of his writing. And I wanted you to know uh, that I'm writing and what I'm writing, and I don't try to equate myself with anybody like you, but I just wanted you to know that these books exist. And so I, I didn't hear a word. It's months and months and months went by. Literally 160 days went by. Hmm. Last week, I, I get a, a, an envelope in the mail that had been damaged and torn and and uh, punched, and it was rewrapped in a USPS envelope saying, sorry for the delay. Uh, this was damaged in handling, and it was his writing saying, among other things, thank you for your book. I'm going to save it for my grandkids. When they're four and two right now. Oh, no way. Give it to them. That's great. And then he explained how uh, he said, God gave me a gift to, to, to write books that seem to be uh, popular with people and to tell stories. And uh, he said, I try to include uh, elements that honor Christ in my books. Uh, and then he, at the end, he said, send me more books, no. which I did last week. Wow. But you know, my story is a parallel in some ways. I think God gave me the ability to, to tell an intriguing story on a level that an eight to 12 or 13 year old boy or, or girl would enjoy and, uh, find, you know, intriguing. Uh, my pastor has read them all. And he said, they're page turners. You know, I, I he said he stayed up one night late reading my, one of my books. I don't know how, but thank God that he's seen fit to bless me that way. Right. Well, the idea of writing a book has always bounced around in my head. You know, i got a few things I could write about, but the idea that you've written six books in just a few years is very fascinating to me. I was so excited when you told me that you had done that. You know, usually about the near the end of each book, I'm about a month out. I can tell in my timetable of, you know, finishing and getting the artwork done and all that. I begin to have an idea for another book and I have to like go, no, 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 I, I, I can't do that yet. <laughs> Put it aside. I may write something down, but I can't get distracted. So as long as these ideas continue to brew, uh, I intend to keep writing. And, and you know, I, I retired from my church position, uh, continued, turned right back around and volunteered to do what I was formerly uh, doing as a staff person. But uh, I had wondered years before my retirement, what will I do? I don't want to sit around. I don't, you know, you can just do so much yard work. Right. But writing has become what is to me so fulfilling that I don't fear, you know, these next years. I, I'm looking forward to these next years. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, man, I love your books. And I want to go down the list and just give us a quick overview of each book. The first book in the series is The Secret of Hickory Hill. You know, um, the thing I wanted to try to tell, and this goes back to, uh, there was a house about a block and a half from where I lived. And it was the Rigsby house. And we uh, we knew about that as boys. And it was a creepy kind of a, a well, not creepy so much. It was just a large out of character house for the neighborhood right. in every way. But uh, I've the character, Mr. Rigsby, is kind of half fictitious, half real. But uh, he uh, he becomes kind of the sage who the boys go to to, uh, you know, get advice. And he's kind of an older man that has some needs to help have people help him mow his yard, whatnot. But uh, he uh, helps them as a former architect. He helps them kind of go and discover uh, there was this older home, and the older home in this case is based on my uncle's farm out of out of town. Uh, he was at a typical farmhouse, and I'd made that kind of in the story. But the boys find a, uh, a secret door, and in uh, there happens to be it's been an abandoned house, but in the bottom of the the old house happened to be some important uh, documents and so forth. And they were able to locate it just using good common sense and uh, noticing things about two rooms that didn't seem to be symmetrical. What would, what could be behind this other wall, you know? So, right. but the, the, the spiritual truth that really comes out of that book is out of Matthew six. And uh, it has to do with, with treasure, wherever your heart is there, your treasure will also be. And right. I try to teach that within the storyline 
and along the way there's some other characters that uh, come forward that become uh, there's just the way the boys uh, interact with some needy with a homeless person and whatnot uh, just kind of try to make that where the the lesson comes from right well i love that the life lessons are practical but they're also obvious and i love the character and the integrity that the three main characters have you know children or young people will compare their their homes their cars their 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 clothes and try to make they get their value out of what they have and i was trying to explain that your value doesn't come from what you have it's who you are and who god knows you to be yep. and that that was what i wanted to, to to tell in book number one well i think you nailed that so the second one is lights on wildcat mountain this was uh this starts out uh, the in my hometown the parks board actually built for uh, radio controlled aircraft they built a full uh, a miniature runway with a with a windsock and the, the numbers painted on it on both ends of it and uh, it was asphalt and it was just a, like a full you know functioning little airport and uh, so we used to go there and watch the other people fly their planes so that that factors into the next book and uh, I learned the Morse code when I was uh, probably 11 or 12 and the, the boys know it in this case my characters know it so they see a flashing light that gives them parts of words and they don't really know what all they missed but they they're intrigued by it and they figure it out and and uh, they end up doing some sleuthing and along the way uh, they learn of uh, what possibly this message was trying to imply and it was criminal but the message I wanted the reader to learn and I take the last two pages of each book and I try to apply the message after the story's ending you know, we've, 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 we've had a period, the story's over. Now, here's what I wanted to explain, and I try to take it back and refer to the story. I wanted them to know that whatever you sow, you will one day reap, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Right. And uh, that, that can be good, and it, it, can, be, it can be bad. And in this case, for the characters that these boys discovered, you know, they, they thought they got, they got away with something 10 years earlier. But in <laughs> fact, uh, it came back to uh, reveal their motives and the boys were a part of helping um, bring them to justice. Okay, so I have to ask you this. Did you learn anything from writing the first book that helped you write the second one? I think I got better with com with with dialogue. I, I was, yes, I, I try very hard to paint very clear pictures of the setting so that your mind can... Uh, I, I love how, you know... I read a story, and if it's well-written, I feel like I, I'm there in the middle of it. It's descri described so well. So I think I've learned how to describe settings, not overly so, but uh, sufficiently so. Right. And I wanted to uh, – so I got better. Yeah, if, if, if I didn't improve with each book, I would feel like I'm wasting and spinning some, my, my, my wheels. But I feel like I'm, I'm doing better with dialogue and doing, doing better with that. And, I, you know, so yes, I did. Okay, so your third book, Whispers in the Wind, it must have felt at this point like the wind was at your back. You've got two books out. You're working on your third, feeling like a pro author at this point, I would think. Uh, give us a little insight into Whispers in the Wind. That was going to be my last book originally. In my plan, I was going to write three. I just for some reason thought I need to write three. And then uh, hmm. I, uh, it starts out with... Uh, one of the characters listening late night in his bedroom on a shortwave receiver, listening to uh, some, you know, long distance stations. And he happens to run across uh, the sound of a emergency message that he helps mitigate, uh, brings about a good resolution for that. And um, they're incorporated into that are some characters. I, this is the first time I incorporated the little girl hmm. and her dad that are uh, a, not part of the uh, the regular each one of these stands alone these are not like a series you have to read each book and then right. each book is its own distinct story but um i i i think i wanted to convey uh, uh this was the prodigal son story uh that was probably the strongest part of it to me there were other parts of it that i think might be taken as a spiritual lesson about um you know being able to forgive or whatnot but the, in this case there was a character who uh, had left his own home and essentially had joined the circus. You know, you hear that almost joked about, but he had joined a traveling <laughs> yeah. group of folks who uh, he was on board a, a traveling train. And uh, in the course of meeting him, the boys help him see 
that his dad was looking for him and he didn't know that and his dad had driven a great distance to find uh track him down and and uh anyway they help him uh, return home so uh, the prodigal son story which is such a great parable mm-hmm. that jesus told i i wanted to retell that in a little different twist and uh, give folks the understanding that you 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 can go back you know god's forgiveness is extended to you wherever you are Right. Well, one of the things I love about the books, Greg, is you don't just do life lesson stuff. You actually get into spiritual truths, and kids need that today more than ever. So the next book is called Password to Mead Manor. I did a lot of research about the Underground Railroad, and that intrigued me because Debbie and I did some traveling uh, in Savannah. Uh, there we, we went to a church built by uh, slaves. And uh, they did it at night by, by uh, campfires. Their, their masters let them go. This is back during the Civil War, pre-Civil War. And I've, in the basement of that church, the guide showed us there was a, a, an entrance under the subfloor of the basement with a crawl space about four feet tall. Hmm. And in the entire floor, there were holes bored that allowed what we thought just with airflow, but they were actually where people who attended the church would drop food into the um, those holes to feed tr- the, the runaway slaves who were transitioning north in the Underground Railroad movement. So that intrigued me, and I just – my hometown in Kentucky was such that I knew a lot about the, as a border state. There were walls, stone walls built by slaves everywhere. So I wanted to uh, deal with um, those stories about – well, not so much about that, but there, there's a character in that book – Who's, a, who's the uh, the grandson of of a slave who moved out of uh, slavery into freedom? And I really wanted to convey the idea about uh, just that we are free in Christ. Yes. And, and uh, so kind of took the slavery and took a parallel right. for it. Well, the research you did paid off because I love the stories that you told about how people what they did to actually help slaves that were trying to escape and get north. At great peril to themselves uh, all the way through. You know, Romans 6.16, this was the, kind of the key verse for me. That, uh, and it's, it, People sometimes misunderstand what it's saying. It's whatever you serve becomes your master. Yep. It's not whoever you serve. Yep. But if you, if you serve, uh, if you are focused on, on you know, your, your motivation is on doing well and doing good, and, and uh, that's, that, that becomes your that's what you live for. That's what, you know, you get your, uh, what, how you thrive and that can be good or bad. And I wanted people to understand that, that, you know, being a slave doesn't mean you're in bondage. You can be a slave to a habits and to thoughts and to uh, what you feel is how you have to perform. Uh, and there's freedom in Christ. Okay. So book number five echoes from Creek Canyon. The, um, the story there, and again, you asked me early on how I get my ideas, uh, when I was a fourth grader, uh, a missionary pilot came to my church in Kentucky, and he spoke to our congregation and told about his work in the Central America. But he had, had flown his small plane in from there, and he said, if anybody wants to take a little flight, meet me at the so-and-so airport at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'll take you around the city. It's like three people at a time. Well, I'd never flown on anything, and I intrigued by flights, so mm-hmm. I was the first person in line. And he took us on a little trip around our, you know, overhead and uh, in the general area of my home, and and that was a, that's what bit me to later on get my pilot's license. But <laughs> that's so awesome. The story here has to do with his eventual uh, difficulty in his own uh, as he leaves town. Some th- things happen to him, and the boys utilize some gadgetry that they have built uh, for science projects to help locate him. They didn't know they would be using it for that purpose, but I try to. I'm, I'm a techie, and I was always experimenting with things and you know gadgets, electronic things. So I wanted to put that kind of element in the story. And so he, uh, but the the the, uh, the parable of the lost coin and the seeking savior hmm. is what I put into this book as being, uh, you know, the Bible tells us about the widow who lost her, one of her coins, and she swept, swept her house, went back and forth asking her neighbors, "Help me find this coin." Because it was valuable to her, and and then how Jesus said he, the ninety and nine, the ninety or ninety nine are safe, but the one lost sheep. I'm going to go find that sheep, right. and so this story kind of like I try to bring that into 
a modern day uh, fashion where these boys are determined to help find this, 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 this precious saint who has fallen into a bad way with, uh, because of some other issues. But. Right. Okay. So the sixth book up the spiral staircase, uh, give me some thoughts on that one. I, I love the story. I mean, it's to me a sweet story. I won't give you too much away because uh, you haven't read it yet. But the but the spiritual truth that comes out of this is Matthew six fourteen and fifteen, and it just has to do with and the, the Bible deals with it many times. With make sure you have no ought with your with your neighbor. Don't let the sun go down on your mm. wrath. You know, it talks about unforgiveness and holding a grudge over and over in the New Testament. And so I try to convey that truth about the the dangers of holding a grudge. And and not forgiving someone, right. and how how it, it hurts you way more than it hurts the other person. Yep. So that that's the spiritual truth that comes out of that, and I'm not going to give it away to you. <laughs> well, I can tell you this: it reminds me of my cousins and I growing up. I had one cousin named Tom, a cousin named Rick, and we used to do all kinds of crazy stuff. And we had woods behind us. A mile behind our house was the river. We used to hike back there, rode snowmobiles. We did all kinds of stuff together. These really took me back to when I was a kid with my cousins. And uh, I appreciate so much the characters in these books because they're kids that when parents, you know, give these books to their kids to read, these are the kind of kids you would want your kids to hang out with. It's been uh, fun developing what I just, I, I wanted there to be innocence and, and wild curiosity. And I wanted them to, uh, have you know wouldn't be inhibited to uh do something that maybe was a little uh, unexpected i mean the first book they the, the, the boys clean the graveyard trying to be inconspicuous about it they right. don't want anyone to know they did it because they just saw it neat and i so, someone wrote a review I, that i was real pleased to read in on amazon where the books are found uh they said uh these are real boys with 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 beating hearts and curious minds mm-hmm. and that's what i hoped would be how people would would find them because that's how I, I think of them. So I hope it can be right. Well, the one thing about these books that I love is no matter what situation these guys find themselves in, one of them says, "Let's move forward. Let's deal with this." Um, kids nowadays they need to see somebody that's not afraid. You know, I, I really have made different personalities, but they all interact really, really comfortably with each other. I think and. And uh, you're you're right. There, there's there's one that's a bit more uh, analytical. He's going to sit back and try to say, "Now, let's be sure." And you know, the other one's on the edge. And there's one in the right in the middle that kind of binds the two together. So, uh, I, I I think they're believable. And you know, it's funny. My wife asks me, she said, "Which one are you?" And I'll always say, "I'm the clever, handsome one." <laughs> I never will never will tell her which which who I am of all three. So anyway, you should tell her, you should ask her, you tell me. (laughs) (laughs) She, she she does have an idea, but I never confirmed it. (laughs) Well, I know which one I want to be, but you got to tell me if that's really me or not. (laughs) That's right. Yes. Well, the one thing about it, you sent me these books right before I went on vacation back in March. And since then I've been shot out of a cannon and been very busy, but I've tried to work it in to get these books knocked out. I'm almost through the fourth one. I'm looking forward to the fifth and the sixth one. Let me ask you this real quick. Um, is six going to be the end of it, or do you have more in the in the making? I have, I'm have. i writing seven right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm a chapter, chapter and a half into number seven. Oh, that's and, awesome. Uh, I'm excited about it very much so. But yeah. Do you have a title for number seven? Yes, I do. Uh, it's called the, the Cabin on Copperhead Cove. Nice. And uh, it's uh, kind of based around the riverfront, this little town that these boys live in is on the river. These are all, uh, you know, guys who have a lot of uh, experience with boating and with skiing and whatnot, and they have, you know, good instruction. So right. I, I try to make sure that I understand, uh, convey that these these boys, even though they have some adventures, they've been well prepared for the adventures, and, you know, they're not just doing things <laughs> randomly. Right. Okay, so let me ask you this. I don't have many kids, I don't think, that listen to the podcast. Um so let's frame it this way. Do you get feedback from adults that buy your books or read these books? What do they say? What do adults say about these books? What's been funny to me are the number of people who are 
boomers, <laughs> yeah. you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, wow. who are the most vocal to me when they they message me or email me and they, they say, when is the next book coming out? Come on. <laughs> you know, I'm, we're waiting. And I, because what has happened is it has evoked memories and yes. good feelings about a safer and saner time in our country where uh, the home was safe and you really could leave your car, your car keys in your car and you could leave your, um, you know, your front door unlocked. Uh, I'm not suggesting that at all, but it, it does bring back pleasant memories of those times. Right. It's almost like you're a voice for all of us, Greg. Like we all had the same kind of childhood and you're telling it. You're telling all of our stories. Well, thank you. You know, I, I want to make the cycle return where the boys and girls today can feel like they don't have, there, there is something besides what is placed in front of them, keeping them, you know, focused on a screen somewhere. You know, there is fun outdoors. My, my front yard tree in my neighborhood, we had a crab apple tree mm -hmm. and those were a little hard, you know, the, you don't find those where I live now, but they were a little hard, tiny, yeah. uh, like a cherry sized apple and uh, the bitter to taste. I, I tried that, but uh, they were perfect slingshot ammo. Perfect. <laughs> And uh, one of my books, uh, you if you, you you remember, that yep. was part of what, what they did to help bring down a couple of thieves. They just are pelting them with crab apples and slingshots. And we all had slingshots. Yep. But we didn't just do destructive things, but, you know, slingshots are kind of cool. Dude, we had slingshots and walkie-talkies. Yeah, absolutely. I loved them. I loved walkie-talkies and slingshots. Same here. All right, Greg. Well, listen, man, I'm going to get you out of here on this. Please tell everyone where they can go buy these books, uh, either for themselves or for eight to 13 year old boys. Where can they go find all of these great books? Two ways. Um, if you went to Amazon right now and you typed in Bon Air Boys, B O N A I R B O Y S, or my name, Greg Golden, either one. We'll take you to the six books that are currently there. They're available as e-books uh, for Kindle or e-readers or obviously paperback. They're about 105 pages, 110 pages long. I intentionally made them a, a length that would not overwhelm a young reader. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to have you know, you hand a, a kid a book for summer reading and he, he just goes, I can't do that. And th these are a size that look manageable. Uh, I have a website, bonairboys.com. And that gives a description of each book, a link directly to Amazon, a little video that uh, I was interviewed by a, t a local TV station where they wanted to kind of know what I was doing with my books. So those two things, bonairboys.com uh, or just search on Amazon for bonairboys and you will go right to the listing of books. Well, Greg, you're one of the kindest people I've ever known, and you could have easily just rode off in the sunset, went down there and hung out at the beach down the road from where you live. I'm so proud of you for writing these books, and I'm so excited. I hope you sell 10 million copies of every one of them. You're very kind. It's it's uh, the, the Lord really gets all the praise for having pushed me out of uh, what was fear into obedience. And I, that's not where I go all the time readily, but uh, thank you for liking them and for uh, being my friend for these many years. Absolutely. I appreciate you more than you know. And everyone knows somebody eight to 13, whether it's somebody you go to church with, someone you, that lives down the street from you, buy them these books and give them some adventure that they might not have any other way. I would love it if everyone that listens to this show would go buy a set of these books and give them to some kid that really needs to know God's love and needs to uh, have some positive influence in their life. I think they'll enjoy them. And you know what? You might want to read them first because if you, uh, even as a parent of uh, that age or certainly a grandparent of that age, I think you'll find some great, uh, fun in them that will uh, take you back to memories of your own before you hand those over. That's what most of my adult readers do is they read them first and give them to their grandkids. All right. Well, another thing, if you're a parent and you're tired of being the bad guy and you're trying to get some lessons through to your kids and you want them to act better or take more responsibility for stuff, get these books and let Greg help push your kids in the right direction. You know, the, it's just, they're subtle in the story, but they're, but they're very, uh, you're aware of them and they absolutely are wrapped up at the end of each uh, book where you take and personalize, I take and personalize the scriptural truth. Uh, each one of them has a 
you know, Bible verse or two that deals with that truth. Right. Absolutely. Well, Greg Golden, I love you, man. And uh, I appreciate you. And I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, John. It's been just a great joy. Hey, Rockstar provides digital marketing software and services for your church to generate more interest, create more exposure, and reach more people. Let Hey, Rockstar amplify the awesomeness of your ministry. And as always, Hey, Rockstar is a proud sponsor of the Stage Right with John Thorne podcast. Thanks for listening today. My thanks to you, Hey, Rockstar. My special thanks to Greg Golden for being my guest. Next Friday, longtime producer and drummer Tom Reeves. Have a great week, everyone.